All right, let's go ahead and uh, open up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we, we motivated through John 8 fairly quickly, um, and now we are diving into John chapter 9. Um, I'm sure most of you probably have seen these videos, and I don't understand the science. Blake could probably explain the science of it, but um, these videos of folks who are colorblind and with certain types of glasses, they can see color for the first time. Have you ever seen those videos? It's pretty amazing um, to see the response, the reaction. Um, again, I don't understand the science to it. Apparently, there's some kind of refraction happening that... Um, allows them to be able to see it. I don't know. But it, but it is awesome. And, and I know this is, is kind of hard for us to imagine, imagine, but now think if that were you and you could see color for the first time or certain colors for the first time, like maybe you've heard the color red your whole life, but you've never been able to experience what red is, and then you see it, and you're like, that's the best color I've ever seen in my life. But then think, well, what if I were born blind, and I've never seen anything at all? Um, the, the feeling, the, the change of your life if suddenly you were able to see. Um, it's kind of hard for us to imagine that, and I understand that, because We've spent our entire lives seeing beautiful things. Um, I'm a visual person. I, I don't know what I would do if I could not see. Um, if I had to go on other senses, I guess you learn to adapt. I mean, I, I, but, but not being able to see? I mean, could you imagine trying to live your life not being able to see? Um, even walking up here, I would not be able to do that like I just was able to do. I'd probably trip over the floor because it's got humps in it. You know, I would definitely trip coming up here because I, you know, would run into the stage. I wouldn't be able to see you. I wouldn't be able to experience that. Um, in, in today's text, we, we see a man who is born blind, but, but he's shown this outstanding compassion by Jesus. And what it does is it radically changes his life. And for us, it's, it's similar to how we walk through life because we might not face the same issue that this man faces, but we face a very similar issue, and that's spiritual blindness. So it's, it's not a physical blindness that we deal with, or, or at least not at the moment, but there's a spiritual blindness that, that we all face. But the reality is this, that when the sight is restored to this man, his, his life is totally different and he becomes a new man. Likewise for us, when we experience healing from spiritual blindness, we, we're no longer the same person. And here's the main idea of today's text, that when we place our trust in Jesus, our spiritual blindness is overcome and our lives are forever changed. And that's the title this morning is Forever Changed. I've been kind of on this little two-word thing over the last three weeks. You know? True freedom, true sonship, forever changed. Didn't really plan that. It just kind of happened that way. Just noticed it. But 
I guess, I guess I'm turning into an old school Baptist. Um, but I am deviating again this morning. I will have four points, not three, but so I still got a ways to go, I guess. But John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. If you will, let's stand. Um, and I'm going to read this passage for us and, and pray for us this morning. And, and as I pray, if you will pray to pray that God would speak and God would prepare us to hear. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the mud with his eye, man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would um, bless the reading of your word. I think so often, God, we forget to give you give thanks for you giving us your word. And the beauty of just reading and, and seeing the work of Christ for the good of your people is, is simply a grace in and of itself. And God, I pray this morning that as we, your people, gather here that you have prepared us to hear your word. And that now that we're here, we're ready to listen. We're ready to take heart, take hold, and hear the word of the Lord. And so, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. That it would not be my wisdom, man's wisdom that we hear, but God, it would be you speaking through to point directly to the hearts of your people so that we may glorify you in the work of your salvation and that we may glorify you in the restoring of sight. We would glorify you in simply being good. So let us together this morning, Father, hear the word of the Lord. And let us be changed by the truths 
of your glorious gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So again, when we place our trust in Jesus, our spiritual blindness is overcome and our lives are forever changed. The first thing that we see when we come to this text is the problem of blindness. A little bit of context. He, he starts, he says, as he passed by. So we need to kind of figure out, all right, pass by where and, and where is he coming from and where is he going? There's, there's kind of like a split in the road. A lot of commentators, a lot of scholars believe that this was immediately following verse 59. So Jesus has been face to face with these Jewish leaders who are um, trying to put him on trial. They're, they're trying to say he's demon possessed. They're going through all these things because they're completely outraged at what he's saying and doing. And he tells them that their heritage isn't enough. It's not enough that they're Abraham's children. That, yeah, that's great and all, but that doesn't bring salvation. Only Christ could do that. And at the end, if you remember, when Jesus made the bold claim, basically proving that he was God the Father, saying, before Abraham was, I am. They began to pick up stones to, to attempt to stone him. They wanted to kill him. They, they wanted to destroy him, right? And, and so he, he flees the temple because obviously the time was not there. He's still about six months away from his appointed death. So some people believe it's right after that. If it's not right after that, they at least say it's pretty soon after. You know, whether he's running out of the temple and as he's running out, he sees a man right there. We don't know, but, but that's, that's not all that important. What, what you do need to know is it does follow in the same line. Because sometimes in the Gospels, they bounce around a little bit. But here, it does follow pretty closely to that interaction with the Jewish leaders. It says, and he passed, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So we find this man who is blind from birth. He has congenital um, blindness. So he's never been able to see at all in his life. I mean, we've, we've seen stories of people who lose their sight. We might have known people who've lost their sight, but at least they had the grace to, to experience sight for a time. But, but this man was blind completely from birth. He, he's never seen anything a day uh, in his life, which basically means his life has been spent in darkness. You know, there, there's no light. Now, I don't know what it's like to be blind, but I'm assuming it's just blank. It's probably like you're just looking into a dark room with no light at all. And, and traditionally, people like this were confined to be beggars. He couldn't do anything else. He didn't have the technology we have now. He didn't have the help. He didn't have, you know, a seeing eye dog to help him around. He, he probably didn't have, you know, any kind of... Um, Obviously, they probably didn't have Braille. You know, there wasn't Greek Braille on the side of the street, so he could tell where to go. He was just confined to begging, which is a really sad thing. And, and what's interesting is that as we get into verse 2, and they begin to ask, well, who sinned? In a lot of cases, those who were born blind in this era, it was because of a sin. It was a sin from the parents and with sexually transmitted disease. And if, and if certain ones were not you know, taken care of well and medicated well and certain precautions were not taken, then a child born could be born blind. But the disciples immediately in verse 2 say, but who sinned, this man or his 
parents. And what's interesting is they're, they're pretty narrow in their thoughts, so they only ask with two options. You know, he, obviously he's blind, so there's sin. So it's either him or his parents who sin. So who is it, Jesus? Now, before we just, you know, want to bash them completely, we need to understand where they're coming from. It wasn't out of bounds for them to say this. Because the culture they were in, the, 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 the religion they were in, had taught them for years that an infirmity was caused by sin. Think, Job. Job's the very first book of the Bible. And Job goes through torment, and what do his friends and his wife want him to do? They're questioning him, like, what have you done? Surely you've done something pretty bad. And even his wife gets to a point, you just need to curse God and get it over with. And he wouldn't do that. He trusted in the Lord. And so they're coming from this place of saying, of thinking... Well, obviously you've sinned because there's some infirmity in your life. You've obviously failed. You've obviously missed the mark in some way. That's why you're here. But what we actually realize is it's nothing more than a result of the fall. As sin entered the world, that means that there's no one off limits. No one can escape the grasp, the clutches of sin. No one can escape the, the damning effects of sin. And this man is a perfect example. He couldn't escape it. He, he was born blind. And in their question, they say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? They were so narrowed into their thought, and, and it really kind of points us to that same question that, that we are faced with every day in our culture, the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Well, to answer that question, we have to start with the reality that the question misses the mark itself. Because it assumes that there are good people. So we're assuming that bad things are happening to good people when the reality is, is there are no good people. There are sinners who are saved by grace. And there are sinners who have not been saved. And so there are no good people. No one can escape the effects of of sin. We have repeated hundreds of times, probably, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a verse that most people, even if they're not in the church, have possibly heard. I'm not sure if you're fans of the blacklist or not, but he even quoted Romans 3.23 in the blacklist this week. Completely out of context and being a really Raymond Reddington kind of hilarious way, but, but the fact is, is it's not an unfamiliar text. And we know the effects of sin. We know the cause. I mean, the, 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 what sin leads to. Sin is the cause. The effect is death. It's pain. It's trials. And for us, we may not face the same transgressions that this man is facing, but we do face the problem of sin and its effects. Every day of our lives. So the problem of blindness is, in essence, a problem of sin. And again, it's, if you're not a, a blind, then, then don't think you're, you're escaping this because you very much are facing the same issue and it's a spiritual blindness. That's one of the beauty, beautiful things that we see in Scripture is that even when we're talking about something physical, there's always something spiritual or typically something spiritual that can be tied to it. 
And the second thing we see as we move on is the calling of urgency. So look in verse 3 at Jesus' answer to them. So here they come with two options. Obviously, he sinned or his parents. And Jesus says, no, let me give you a third. It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So option number three, neither. But it's so God could be glorified. Now, it is important to know here because what we're getting into now is the problem of evil. And, and, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying because what the text is not saying is that God causes this man to be born, to be born um, blind. God doesn't cause the sin, but because of the effects of the fall, God does allow the sin in order to providentially come in and show and display his power. That's what he's saying. It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think of the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery because his brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. And by the end of the, end of the story, it's Joseph who is sitting on the throne, literally. And he tells them, and as he forgives them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we see God working to display his power, to display his goodness. So it's, an, it's important to know it's, it's got, that God allows, not causes. He allows it to happen so that he can turn around to show his divine mercy and his divine grace over all of creation. He could have easily left this man blind. And I'm sure there was a way that he could have explained sin in such a way to show without healing the man that he could still have explained salvation without healing. But he decided to heal out of compassion. And you've seen this several times through John with Jesus where it wasn't necessarily in the script, but he did it anyway. And he still winds up showing himself glorious. And the reality for us is that we can't see our need for salvation without first seeing sin. So unless we understand sin, unless we understand the effects of sin, unless we understand the depth and the heinous nature of sin, we can't see salvation. We don't see a need for salvation. If I keep going down the path with that um, understanding that I am good, so why do bad things happen to good people? Then I don't ever need a Savior. I might need somebody to come to my aid once in a while, but I don't need a savior. I can get myself out of it. But that's not what scripture teaches. That's not the truth of your life and mine. So in other words, we can't understand the greatness of what Christ has done. We can't understand the majesty of the work of Jesus and the glories of salvation without understanding sin. Namely, the sin in your life and mine. Because without the fall and without sin, we would know nothing of the gospel and the grace of God. Think about that. What need do we have of Jesus if there's no sin? What need do we have for salvation if there's no trial or tribulation? What need do we have for something glorious if everything's good? 
We don't have a need for good news if there is only good news already. But that's not the reality. We live in a world that is marred with sin. and We live in a world that is full of bad news. And we need the grace of God. We need the goodness of God. We need the good news that Jesus comes. We see our calling. Again, remember, Jesus says that it was so that the works of God might be displayed. So he's working to show his glory. Now look at verse 4. It says, we... Jesus, in his, talking to his disciples, we must work the works of him, the Father who sent me, while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. Now, it's interesting because he's just told us that he's working to display the glory of God. Now he's saying, now we do the same. I'm doing it, but now we are doing it together. We are called to do the same, to put the glory of God on display, to show the works of God to the nations. And there's urgency in that. We know that there's urgency, he's saying, because the day is now. You work while it is day, but night is coming when no one can work. The day is an obvious reference to Jesus being the light, he even says that he is the light of the world. And it's this idea that Jesus, while he is with us, it is day. But he's telling them, I'm in your presence now. Let's do this. But there is a day coming. Night is coming. Day, night. There is a night coming. Night referring to the death of Christ when he will no longer be with them. They won't be able to rely on him in their presence to do all the work. They will rely on the Holy Spirit working through them. But he's saying we have work to do. There's work to be done. But night also has another meaning. It's not just referring to the death of Christ. It's actually referring to our physical death as well. And so we see an urgency. You know, we've been told that we have a certain amount of time. We don't know what that time is. For some, it's a lot longer than others. For some, that... A point in time will come unexpectedly. Some, it will come after many years of pain. Some, it'll come when it almost is expected. When we get older, we know that our race is almost over. But the reality is, is we all have an appointed time, an allotted amount of time. So it is imperative that we not waste it. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Folks, there's work for us to do. And night is coming. We don't know when the night is. Why wait on it? It also reminds us that we're created to do good work. Ephesians 2 is this beautiful picture of Christ saving us. And so then we're saved by him for him. It is by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that we can't boast. And then he immediately follows it up, which I've always thought is astounding, obviously, because I, I repeat it quite a lot. But Ephesians 2.10, And we are his workmanship created by him for good works, which he's already prepared beforehand. And so he saves us for him. To do his work, to do this, to display his glory. 
So we're created for this. This is why we were created. We're created to display the glories of God. And so often we think that we're saved for us and we're saved for our own glory and we're saved for our own satisfaction and we're saved for our own happiness, for our own good, for our own wealth, for our own benefit. But we are saved to display the glory of God. And there's urgency there. And obviously as you get older you realize the urgency more because you begin to see people you know die a lot more often. Friends, younger people than you. There's urgency in the work that has to be done. And just so you know, you're not set out to do this work alone. You just heard the promise of Ephesians 2, that we are His workmanship created for good works, which He's already prepared beforehand. So He's with us. And to add to that, verse 5 says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In other words, you will never walk in darkness. You will face darkness, but you will never be in the dark. And this is assurance for us as the people of God that as we're going and as we're sent to go, He will never leave us and He will never forsake us. He is always, always with us. Thirdly, we see the test of faith. Now look at the action of Jesus here. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. This is, this is interesting because there's no like folklore into putting mud onto to wounds or anything. None. The only thing that scholars can really come up with that has significant weight to it is that this is Christ showing his power of a creation. God created us from the dust of the ground. He created man from the dust of the earth. And, and here he takes mud, dust off the ground, he spits in it, makes a little mud, and he puts it on the man's eyes, or at least in the man's eye sockets. There's nothing special about that, right? I mean, honestly, if I'm having trouble seeing, the last thing I want to do is put mud in my eyes. So he actually does the opposite. See, there's no healing power in, what he's, in, in the act of what he's doing. There, there's, there's nothing special about the mud, and it's full of spit. And so it's this, maybe it's him furthering this idea to display the glory of God, to display the power of God, that he has authority over creation. Whatever the reason is, it points us to that big picture. That he is more powerful than eyesight. That he is more powerful than mud. That he is more powerful than saliva. That he is the true God. He had just told the leaders, I am. I am God. I'm not just some podunk prophet who's coming up here spitting junk. I am the God of the universe. I am the creator of all things. And just how I created Adam out of the dust of the ground, I'm now taking this mud and I'm going to stick it in this man's eyes and I'm going to tell him to go somewhere and he's going to come back seen. I mean, the mud and the, the spit and even when he's sent to go to Siloam, none of that in and of itself has any healing power. Verse 
7, the beginning of it. So he said to them, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. This is a whole interesting story in and of itself. Because again, this is not to say that you have to take actions in order to be healed. What he's actually saying in this man's obedience is, do you trust me? I mean, we live in a world with some jacked up teaching. Jacked up. Where we have faith healers all over TV, and if you know you see all this weird stuff happening and, and people being healed, unquote, and whatever. And you know, when, when they don't, they, they immediately put the blame on the person not being or who they weren't able to heal and say it was your fault because you don't have enough faith. That's not how this thing works. This isn't a question about faith healing here. This is a question about obedience and, and trust. God has called us to go. We know that. The question is, is are we going? Are we trusting Christ truly with our life? Because if he's called us to go and we're not going, then that really boils down to trust. That means we don't trust him. Right? Because if we're not going, there's a reason. One, we either don't believe, even though we say we do, or we just simply don't trust Jesus with our life. Every day, God calls people to difficult places. Every day. Do you trust him? Are you trusting him with your life? Same way, did this man trust Jesus enough as a blind man, now with mud in his eyes, to go to Siloam? Siloam was probably pretty close to where they're at. As a blind man, he would have known his way around somewhat, so it's not like Jesus is sending him on like some big, long journey. Um, but he does send him to somewhere, and, and, and the question is, is, does he trust Jesus enough to go? I think what this also does is it shows us that when we understand the depth of sin, and the Spirit begins to work in us to show us that we're sinful human beings. And we see the urgency of needing to be saved from that. Then out of desperation we'll trust. He is the last hope. He is the only hope. But the man does go. And, and I, I think it's absolutely awesome how John does this. And I've, I've told you this before, but, you know, this was not written in, excuse me, this was not written in English, big shocker. This was written in Greek, right? And when you read the Greek, you just get a whole different sense of Scripture. Because of the way they do their sentence structure. You know, we, we have a subject predicate we have a certain structure that we write in but in the greek they don't use that it's all based on emphasis so you might start and, and the sentence will be all out of whack in english right but it, but it makes a lot of sense because they'll put the emphasis at the beginning of the sentence so you make sure you don't miss the point and there's oftentimes when a word just doesn't carry the same weight in english as it does in the original language but what's interesting about what John does is he doesn't just make it clear to us reading in English, even though he had no idea we would be reading this in English probably. But what he actually does is he clarifies to the Greek-speaking people something that was actually in Hebrew, because Siloam was actually a Hebrew word. 
So he makes sure that they don't miss what the actual meaning was. So he adds in there, which means sent. Now, I don't think it's any accident at all that in verse 4 we see that Jesus is being sent by the Father to display the works of God. And now he's sending the man to the pool of Siloam. And then he also sends us to go to declare the works of God, to declare the greatness of God, to display the glory of God. So remember the big picture. That we're spiritually blind because of sin in our life. Spiritually blind. And for the only hope of cleansing and and healing that we have, this man, he must go to the true Siloam, which is Christ himself. And we, to be healed from sin, must go to the true Siloam, Christ himself. We keep doing all these things trying to receive salvation and they don't work keep trying to do all these things we try to fill these voids with so many different options but there's only one and that's Jesus and the reality is is that Jesus was sent to save sinners are you trusting him to save and that leads us to the fourth thing that we see in this text and that's the transformation of life look at verse Seven, this last half of verse seven. It says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. That's the miracle, right? That, that's the miracle that happened. Jesus put mud with spit in his eyes. He sends him to Siloam and he washes. And again, I'm a visual guy. So here I'm imagining this guy. He finally makes it up to Siloam. And he just falls down and he scoops water up and he begins to rinse. And as he picks his head up, what happens is he sees for the very first time. He goes to this pool. He doesn't know what the ground looks like. He doesn't know what the pool looks like. He doesn't know what the people around him looks like. He doesn't know what he looks like. He doesn't know what his family looks like. He doesn't know what any of his surroundings look like. And he opens his eyes and he just sees for the very first time. He trusted Christ and Christ saved him. Christ healed him. And the reality for us as we face spiritual blindness is this, is that trust in Jesus for salvation equals salvation. If you trust in him, the Bible says that he will save. Not if he feels like it, but he will. Because it's all a work of God. It's this divine work of God, the whole thing. And up until this point, what we've seen in the story is Jesus is initiating the work. Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing, and then he puts it and he says, all right, now go. And so are we trusting? Now look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. He's completely transformed. He's underwent this extreme change that has nearly left him unrecognizable. 
Nothing physical about him changed except his eyesight. That doesn't affect everybody around looking at him. That only affects what he sees. But because of the miracle that God has worked in his life, his life looks nothing like it did. There's probably joy. There's happiness. He's glorying in what just happened to him. So he runs back home. He goes to his home to see what does my house even look like? Where is this place that I've spent my entire life? Who are these people? What is, what is going on? And people are looking at him like, wait a minute, who is this guy? And so there's confusion. Some are saying, I don't know who this guy is. And some are saying, wait a minute, he kind of looks familiar, but I'm not real sure. I can't quite put my finger on it. And he's saying, I am him. I am the man. That's what salvation does is it completely transforms us. It leaves us looking different. Nothing about us should be similar. And obviously, as he insists, I am the man, they begin to just question. They want the details. Right? How is it that you can see? What happened? How were your eyes opened? He says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Where is he? I don't know. His life was changed by this interaction that he has with Jesus. Again, this is an encouragement for us as Christians to live lives that are set apart. To live differently. Reminds me of the quote from Richard Baxter, a Puritan pastor. He says this. He says, I was sure to preach as to never preach again as a dying man to dying man. It's the same thing. He was so captivated by the work of God in his life that there was nothing that could stop him. He was set ablaze by the glories of Christ. I love that this man, when he receives his sight, immediately runs back and he starts pointing people to Jesus. What happened? Where'd your eye? Jesus. Why are you so different? Jesus. What happened to your eye? Jesus. Are our lives that type of thing to where people look and they say, what's going on? Who are you? What's so different? And we just say, Jesus. Jesus told him to go, and he did. And his sight was restored, and his life was transformed. And it's the same for us. It's the same for you and me. Jesus calls us to surrender to him. When we do, spiritual blindness is washed away and our lives are forever changed. So have you trusted in Jesus? Have you come to him blind with no hope and asked him to restore your sight? I encourage you to do that. And he will.
Maybe, maybe you're a Christian already. Are you trusting Jesus? Seems a common thread running lately. Trust and obedience. Obedience and trust. Are we, are we trusting Christ enough to be obedient? Are we trusting Christ with our lives? Have you trusted in Jesus? Let's pray. God, that we would be a people who trusts. That we would be a people who stake everything on you. Resting fully and completely in the work of your hands. Knowing that we have no hope in and of ourselves. That we would just fall at your feet. Would you glorify yourself as you move in the lives of those who are here. That we would trust you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.